The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore. Part 3, The 1800s, Charles Darwin and Evolution. Charles Robert Darwin. Charles Darwin was born in Shrewsbury, England on February 2nd, 1809. A birth date that he shares, incidentally, with another great transformative figure, Abraham Lincoln. Darwin's father was Robert Waring Darwin, a physician and son of the famous Erasmus Darwin, also a physician, as well as a respected writer and naturalist. His mother was Susanna Wedgwood Darwin of the Wedgwood Pottery family. She died when Charles was only eight years old. Charles was educated in the local high school taught by Dr. Samuel Butler. In 1825, Charles Darwin went to Edinburgh to start studying medicine, but he soon realized that he didn't have the stomach for it. So he switched to Cambridge, ostensibly to become a clergyman. He was actually more interested in entomology, especially the study of beetles, and in hunting. He graduated from Christ's College in 1831. It is said that even when Charles Darwin was a young man, he had a patient and open mind, spending many hours collecting specimens of one sort or another and pondering over new ideas. The idea of evolution was very much in the air at those times. It was increasingly clear to naturalists that species change and have been changing for many millennia. The question was, how did this happen? One of his mentors, John Henslow, encouraged young Charles to apply for the unpaid position of a naturalist on a surveying expedition on the now famous vessel, the HMS Beagle, under the command of Captain Robert Fitzroy. Charles left England for the first time in his life on December 27, 1831, and he wouldn't return until October 2, 1836. Most of the ship's time was spent surveying the coasts of South America and nearby islands, but it would also visit various Pacific islands, New Zealand and Australia. It was the Galapagos Islands that most impressed Charles Darwin. There he found finches that had evolved a variety of beaks, each suited to a particular food source. Natural variation had somehow been selected to fit the ecological niches available on the tiny islands. Upon returning, Darwin wrote several books based on his surveys of geology and on the plant and animal specimens that he had observed and collected. He also published his journal as the Journal of a Naturalist. He notes that he was most impressed by the ways similar animals adapted to different ecologies. From early on, Charles Darwin recognized that selection was the principle that men used so successfully when breeding animals. What he needed now was an idea as to how nature could perform that task without the benefit of intelligence. In 
1836, Charles Darwin read a book by Malthus called Population. Malthus introduced the idea that competition over limited resources would, in nature, keep populations stable. But he also warned that human populations, when straining for resources, could suffer as well. On January 29, 1839, Charles Darwin married Emma Wedgwood, a cousin. They lived in London for a few years and then settled in the village of Down, 15 miles outside of London, where they lived for the rest of their lives. Darwin began to suffer from an illness that he had probably contracted from an insect bite in the Andes many years before, although no one is entirely sure exactly what that illness was. Darwin's son Francis later could not say enough about his mother's dedication to his father's well-being. Without her, he would have been considerably less productive. They would go on to have two daughters and five sons. Darwin wrote a sketch of this theory that had been forming in 1842. In 1844, he wrote a letter, quote, At last gleams of light have come, and I am almost convinced, quite contrary to the opinion I started with, that species are not, it is like confessing a murder, immutable. He was about half done with a full exposition of his ideas when he received an essay from an A.R. Wallace with a request for comments. The essay outlined a theory of natural selection. Wallace, too, had read Malthus, and in 1858, while sick from a fever, Wallace had the whole idea come to him in a flash. Charles Darwin, in his reluctance, had postponed revealing his ideas to the scientific public for 20 years. Darwin forwarded Wallace's essay to his friend, Sir Charles Lyell, of the Geological Society as Wallace had requested that Darwin do. Lyell sent the essay on, with an essay from Darwin, for presentation at a scientific conference. The point that they jointly made was clear. Just like men can exaggerate one or another minor variation by selectively breeding dogs or cattle or pigeons, so nature selects similar variations by only permitting the most successful variations to survive and reproduce in the struggle over limited resources. Although the changes would be slight and slow, the millennia would permit the obvious diversity of nature, and Darwin named this natural selection. In 1859, Darwin finally published his master work on the origin of species by means of natural selection. The book was an instant success. There was also, of course, a great deal of debate, mostly concerning the contrast with traditional religious explanations of the natural world. Natural selection was often confused with an earlier idea of the French naturalist Jean-Baptiste Lamarck. Lamarck suggested that characteristics acquired during an animal's life were passed on to its offspring. The famous example is how the constant stretching of the neck over many generations 
explains the giraffe's unlikely physique. This theory, Lamarckianism, was natural selection's major competitor for decades to come. In 1868, Darwin published The Variation of Animals and Plants Under Domestication. Then, in 1871, he came out with The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex. This was really two books in one. The second part is about sexual selection. This is what accounts for, for example, the bright colors of many male birds. Both the male's coloring and the attraction to the coloring on the part of the females during courtship are selected for because these variations benefit the offspring. The Descent of Man portion of the book is a brief introduction to the idea that we as human beings are also the results of natural selection. This part would lead to a lot of heated arguments. In 1872, the expression of emotion was published. This time, Darwin talks about the evolution of the signals that animals use to communicate and relates those signals to human emotional expression. This is the first step toward what we now call sociobiology and evolutionary psychology. In addition to these influential books, Darwin also enjoyed studying and writing about plants. In 1862, he wrote Fertilization of Orchids. In 1875, he came out with Climbing Plants and Insectivorous Plants. In 1877 came Different Forms of Flowers on Plants of the Same Species. In 1880, he wrote with his son, Francis, The Power of Movement in Plants. And in 1881, he published the famous Formation of Vegetable Mold Through the Action of Worms. Charles Darwin died April 19, 1882. He was buried in Westminster Abbey. He was apparently a kind and gentle man, beloved by his family and friends alike. Outside of his voyage on the Beagle, he rarely left his home in Down. Reluctantly, he surrendered his religious beliefs and settled into an agnosticism that did not prevent him from participating in his parish charitable works. Alfred Russell Wallace Alfred Wallace was born in 1823 in the village of Usk in Monmouthshire, England. His options were limited, as his father died when Alfred was still a young man. So, taking advantage of a natural talent, he became a drawing teacher. He went on an expedition to South America with his friend Henry Bates. He spent four years in the jungles of Brazil. On his way home, the ship caught fire and sank, with four years of notes and specimen collections on board. The crew and passengers were fortunately rescued by a passing vessel, but four years of work was now gone. These adventures were the basis of a book, Travels on the Amazon and Rio Negro, published in 1853. Soon afterward, Alfred Wallace left on a second voyage, this time to Malaysia. This one would last eight years. 
It was during this expedition that he, sick with a malarial fever, had the idea for natural selection, and in two days wrote an essay on the topic and sent it to the then famous naturalist Charles Darwin, with a request that Darwin forward it to other naturalists who might be interested. After Wallace's return from Malaysia, he published The Malay Archipelago, a detailed journal on the plants, animals, and people of the islands. Alfred Russell Wallace died on November 7, 1913. Although offered a place at Westminster Abbey, his family preferred that he be buried near his home. His grave is appropriately marked by a fossilized tree trunk. Thomas Henry Huxley. Thomas Henry Huxley was born May 4, 1825, the son of George Huxley, a schoolmaster, and Rachel Huxley. He received two years of formal education at his father's school, and for the rest was self-educated. Although he was raised an Anglican, he became interested in Unitarianism and naturalistic thinking. This interest led him to begin studying biology with his brother-in-law. His studies led to a scholarship at Charing Cross Hospital in London, where he won awards in physiology and organic chemistry. He served as an assistant surgeon on the HMS Rattlesnake, which was surveying the waters around Australia and New Guinea. To pass the time, Huxley began investigating the various forms of sea life. Huxley met and fell in love with Nettie Heathorne in Sydney, in 1847. He then continued his biological research in that part of the world. After returning to England, he was elected to the Royal Society in 1850, but could not find an academic position. Depressed and angry, he began taking on controversial stands, including the denial of the Christian version of geology. In 1854, Huxley began teaching at the Government School of Mines. Finally established as a gentleman, he brought the patient Nettie to England, and they married in 1855. Huxley met Charles Darwin in 1856, and they developed a long and close friendship. Huxley took it upon himself to begin a campaign for Darwin's theory, which earned him the nickname Darwin's Bulldog. In particular... Huxley fought against the church and for the concept of the human evolution from apes. All the while, Huxley was a great promoter of sciences in general and scientific education in particular. Huxley was responsible for a great deal of research, from his original work on sea creatures to later work on the evolution of vertebrates. He also came up with the idea of agnosticism by which he meant the belief that ultimate reality would always be beyond human grasp. And Huxley is responsible for the popular metaphysical point of view known as epiphenomenalism. In 1882, Huxley's daughter went mad. She would die five years later under the care of Jean-Martin Charcot, the great French psychiatrist. 
Huxley himself became very depressed following this and retired from his professorship. For a while, he promoted social Darwinism, but backed away from that years later to say, with Darwin, that humanity is best served by promoting ethics rather than instincts. Huxley died of a heart attack during a speech, June 29, 1895. Herbert Spencer. Herbert Spencer was born April 27, 1820, in Derby, England. His father was a schoolmaster, and both his parents were dissenters, i.e., religious nonconformists. Herbert Spencer was clearly gifted and was mostly self educated. An excellent writer, Spencer wrote articles on social issues for various magazines of the day and even became the editor of The Economist for several years. In 1855, he published The Principles of Psychology. This became part of a series of books, which he called The Synthetic Philosophy, and included biology and sociology, as well as psychology. Originally, Herbert Spencer, like so many people at the time, believed that the inheritance of acquired characteristics, or Lamarckianism, was the best explanation for the variety in the natural world. But he became a follower of Darwin's theory. It was, in fact, Spencer who coined the phrase, the survival of the fittest. But he also transformed Darwin's theory into a social theory that encouraged extreme individualism and laissez-faire economic policies called social Darwinism. Basically, survival of the fittest was to apply to people competing against other people, and he implied that it was something of a social duty to accept the fact that some would be rich and others be poor, and that the consequences of poverty should not be interfered with. Even whole societies, such as England, were engaged in a struggle for survival that did not allow for weakness of will or sentimentality. Social Darwinism is not something Darwin would have approved of. It has in it the fallacy of a false analogy. Human society is not a neat parallel to the non-human biological world. Unfortunately, social Darwinism seems to be here to stay, and it can be found within fascist conservative, and libertarian political agendas, as well as the personal philosophies, such as that of Ayn Rand. Spencer is, nonetheless, considered one of the great productive thinkers of his day. He died December 8, 1903, in Brighton, Sussex. A Selection from the Descent of Man by Charles Darwin We have seen that man incessantly presents individual differences in all parts of his body and in his mental faculties. These differences or variations seem to be induced by the same general causes and to obey the same laws as with lower animals. 
In both cases, similar laws of inheritance prevail. Man tends to increase at a greater rate than his means of subsistence. Consequently, he is occasionally subjected to a severe struggle for existence, and natural selection will have affected whatever lies within its scope. A succession of strongly marked variations of a similar nature is by no means requisite. Slight fluctuating differences in the individual suffice for the work of natural selection, not that we have any reason to suppose that in the same species all parts of the organization tend to vary to the same degree. By considering the embryological structure of man, the homologies which he presents with the lower animals, the rudiments which he retains, and the reversions to which he is liable, we can partly recall in imagination the former condition of our earlier progenitors, and can approximately place them in their proper place in the zoological series. We thus learn that man is descended from a hairy-tailed quadruped, probably arboreal in its habitats, and an inhabitant of the old world. This creature, if its whole structure had been examined by a naturalist, would have been classed among the quadrumana, as surely as the still more ancient progenitor of the old and new world monkeys. The quadrumana and all the higher mammals are probably derived from an ancient marsupial animal, and this through a long line of diversified forms from some amphibian-like creature, and again from some fish-like animal. In the dim obscurity of the past, we can see that the early progenitor of all the vertebra must have been an aquatic animal, provided with bronchi, with the two sexes united in the same individual, and with the most important organs of the body, such as the brain and heart, imperfectly or not at all developed. This animal seems to have been more like the larvae of the existing marine ascidians than any other known form. The high standard of our intellectual powers and moral disposition is the greatest difficulty which presents itself after we have been driven to this conclusion on the origin of man. Everyone who admits to the principle of evolution must see that the mental powers of the higher animals, which are the same in kind as those of man, though so different in degree, are capable of advancement. The moral nature of man has reached its present standard partly through the adaptation of his reasoning powers and consequently of just public opinion, but especially from his sympathies having been rendered more tender and widely diffused through the effect of habit, example, instruction, and reflection. It is not improbable that after long practice, virtuous tendencies may be inherited. With the more civilized races, the conviction of the existence of an all-seeing deity has had potent influence on the advance of morality. Ultimately, man does not accept the praise or blame of his fellows as his sole guide, though few escape this influence. But his habitual convictions, controlled by reason, afford him the safest rule. His conscience, then, becomes the supreme judge and monitor. Nevertheless, the first foundation or origin of the moral senses lies in the social instincts, including sympathy, and these instincts no doubt were primarily gained, as in the case of the lower animals, through natural selection. 
The belief in God has often been advanced as not only the greatest, but the most complete of all of the distinctions between man and the lower animals. It is, however, impossible, as we have seen, to maintain that this belief is innate or instinctive in man. On the other hand, a belief in an all-pervading spiritual agency seems to be universal and apparently follows from a considerable advance in man's reason and from a still greater advance in his faculties of imagination, curiosity, and wonder. I am aware that the assumed instinctive belief in God has been used by many persons as an argument for his existence. But this is a rash argument, as we should thus be compelled to believe in the existence of many cruel and malignant spirits, only a little more powerful than man. For the belief in them is far more general than in a beneficent deity. The idea of a universal and beneficent creator does not seem to arise in the mind of man until he has been elevated by long-continued culture. I am aware that the conclusions arrived at in this work will be denounced by some as highly irreligious, but he who denounces them is bound to show why it is more irreligious to explain the origin of man as a distinct species by descent from some lower form through the laws of variation and natural selection than to explain the birth of individual through the laws of ordinary reproduction. The birth both of the species and of the individual are equally parts of that grand sequence of events which our minds refuse to accept as the result of blind chance. The understanding revolts at such a conclusion, whether or not we are able to believe that every slight variation of structure, the union of each pair in marriage, the dissemination of each seed, and other such events have all been ordained for some special purpose. Sexual selection has been treated at great length in this work, for as I have attempted to show, it has played an important part in the history of the organic world. I am aware that much remains doubtful, but I have endeavored to give a fair view of the whole case. In the lower divisions of the animal kingdom, sexual selection seems to have done nothing, such animals are often affixed for life to the same spot or have the sexes combined in the same individual, or what is still more important, their perspective and intellectual faculties are not sufficiently advanced to allow the feelings of love and jealousy, or of the exertion of their choice. When, however, we come to the Anthropoda and the Vertebra, even to the lowest classes in these two great sub-kingdoms, sexual selection has affected much. Sexual selection depends on the success of certain individuals over others of the same sex, in relation to the propagation of the species, whilst natural selection depends on the success of both sexes, at all ages, in relation to the general conditions of life. The sexual struggle is of two kinds. In the one, it is between the individuals of the same sex, generally the males, in order to drive away or kill their rivals. The females remain passive, whilst in the other, the struggle is likewise between the individuals of the same sex in order to excite or charm those of the opposite sex, generally the females, which no longer remain passive, but select the more agreeable partners. The main conclusion arrived at in this work 
namely, that man is descended from some lowly organized form will, I regret to think, be highly distasteful to many. But there can hardly be a doubt that we are descended from barbarians. The astonishment which I felt on first seeing a party of Fuegans on a wild and broken shore will never be forgotten by me. For the reflection at once rushed into my mind. Such were our ancestors. These men were absolutely naked and bedaubed with paint. Their long hair was tangled, their mouths frothed with excitement, and their expression was wild, startled, and distrustful. They possessed hardly any arts, and like wild animals lived on what they could catch. They had no government, and were merciless to everyone not of their own small tribe. He who has seen a savage in his native land will not feel much shame if forced to acknowledge that the blood of some more humble creature flows in his veins. For my own part, I would as soon be descended from that heroic little monkey who braved his dreaded enemy in order to save the life of his keeper, or from that old baboon who descended from the mountains, carried away in triumph his young comrade from a crowd of astonished dogs, as from a savage who delights to torture his enemies, offers up bloody sacrifices, practices infanticide without remorse, treats his wives like slaves, knows no decency, and is haunted by the grossest superstitions. Man may be excused for feeling some pride at having risen, though not through his own exertions, to the very summit of the organic scale. And the fact of his having thus risen, instead of having been aboriginally placed there, may give him some hope for a still higher destiny in the distant future. But we are not here concerned with the hopes or fears, only with the truth as far as our reason permits us to discover it. And I have given the evidence to the best of my ability. We must, however, acknowledge, as it seems to me, that man with all his noble qualities, with sympathy, which feels for the most debased, with, with benevolence, which extends not only to other men, but to the humblest living creature, with his godlike intellect, which has penetrated into the movements and constitutions of the solar system, with all these exalted powers, man still bears in his bodily frame the indelible stamp of his lowly origin. <laughs>